Coaches, athletes, weekend warriors. Have you thought about recovery or regeneration? Today we oftentimes think in training about the stimulus we put on our body and the workload that we do to fatigue us daily, but we don't give enough to the recovery component. Simply Faster has numerous options to enhance your recovery in between the sessions of work that you put your body through daily. They have Theraguns, Normatic Regeneration Kits, and they're all cost-effective options. My athletes at my high school often use the Theragun in between intervals, race days, and training sessions. In the world we live in, it's hard to guarantee that we're going to get a doctor's visit. Simply Faster provides you the option where you don't have to be behind a paywall to get the care that you need with the equipment that they provide. So get yourself the regeneration and recovery that you need and level up. Simply Faster. Check it out. Welcome, everyone, to the Companions of the Compendium podcast. Today, I have Graham Eaton. You've probably heard of Graham from all of his contributions to Simply Faster, numerous record performances, his content that he's done. He's coached for over a decade at Triton's Regionals High School. We're really excited to have him on, very active on social media, a great follow if you're looking for drills, activities, workouts, suggestions, blending a lot of different philosophies. So I'm very excited to have Coach Graham Eaton with me today. Graham, how are we doing? Thanks for having me on. I've followed your stuff for a while now, and I utmost respect to you. So for a chance to be on your podcast, is it's a blessing. So thank you. Well, yeah, man, we've been trying to work this out. Uh, my schedule's been kind of goofy, so I'm super excited to finally have you on here. And um, obviously my heart bleeds heavy for, for sprints and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation. For the few people out there that aren't tapped into kind of our network and our world and the, the circles that we travel, talk to the audience a little bit about yourself, your experience, your evolution as a coach, and then maybe a couple mentors along the way that have helped you develop. Sure. You know, I found track and field in high school because my father was a track and field athlete back in his day. He was a hurdler. I think he was about high 14, six foot two, six foot three high jumper. So, you know, that's something he always enjoyed. He'd take me to the track and, you know, I'd sprint just kind of a natural evolution as an athlete, watching my dad do stuff saying, Hey, that's pretty cool. Obviously I found the ball sports growing up. I loved playing basketball, went out for the team. I, I was a little on the slender side growing up. So Eventually, I found that track was going to be a better fit for me. Went out, ran some relays, did some jumps. When I went to college, I discovered lifting, and it was a Division three school, Salem State College. And obviously, the coaches there were really supportive of me. I was able to make some improvements, even though, you know, I wouldn't say I was blessed with a lot of natural ability. I, my college coach there, Jeff Rockwood, was someone who I always felt planned out the week really nicely, exposed me to different types of training that... I didn't get in high school. Um, and then my high school coach, Joe Colbert, offered me a position volunteering at around 2009, 2010. So I was actually able to go back to Triton and apply some of the stuff I learned in college at my high school. And it's interesting, looking back on it, I definitely thought I knew everything. I thought that what I was doing in college was right away applicable to the high school population. And to Coach Colbert's credit, he kind of left me alone and let me... <laughs> do my thing and figure it out on my own. And I think he did a good job kind of staying hands off and kind of staying hands on when he needed to, to make sure that, you know, I was doing the best thing for the team. And then as of recently, Kyle Valley has been very instrumental in pointing me in the right direction. Uh, he kind of has a way of being like a Wizard of Oz type that nudges you in the right direction, but makes you think critically for yourself rather than just giving you what you want to hear or the answer that you want to hear. And that is kind of the best way that I learn. So a lot of the learning through coaches on Twitter and Simply Faster um, and Kyle, you know, you, Tony Holler, it's allowed me to not just like absorb material, but to like think critically and not be spoon fed the right answer. And that's something I think has really helped me grow over the last four or five years, I would say. Awesome. Well, yeah, you know, what's really interesting about Carl is that the more I do these interviews and the more I do these conversations, you find out that Carl behind the scenes has played a role for a lot of people, not directly connecting the dots for them, but saying, hey, I think the dot that you need to next go to is in this direction. So start researching that because one of the things that I think 
people get when they think about Carl, sometimes they're like, well, I just want this clean, direct answer. Like, give that to me. And I know that that's also kind of like a Dan Path thing where it's the all depends. But Carl has so much knowledge and so he's gone down so deeply in all these different subjects that it's more about, well, I don't want to directly tell you what you should do. And that's frustrating. But it's like, but here's where you can maybe find this answer. You know, and that's the thing that I found really powerful for Carl. And one of the things that for me with with my relationship with Carl, that's been so powerful as well. He's given me a lot of platforms and access and things like that. And people know that. And I've been very open about that. But one of the best things is about Carl and a little peek behind the curtain of my life and my relationship with Coach Valley is that he's challenged me to get involved he's challenged me to maybe take on a subject that's controversial and he's challenged me to finish some of these thoughts or ideas because it's better for our community right it's better for the for the track and field community uh, and and just sports performance community in general and i really appreciate that because without him pushing me and kind of nudging me in these directions so to speak and putting me in a spotlight or a situation where I wouldn't have been very comfortable, I, I wouldn't have the audience that I have. I wouldn't have the connections I have. I wouldn't have the growth that I have because it allowed me access to other people that I would have never had. And thus, I've become a better coach because I have access to all these different minds and people that, that really challenge thought and challenge ideas. Would you agree? Yeah. And I would say at different points in your coaching career, you're going to need a different type of mentor. Like early on, you're going to need maybe someone that, you know, shows you exactly how it's done. But at some point, you know, they're going to have to back away, let you make those mistakes for yourself. Then you need to expose yourself to content like Spender's Compendium or other coaches that just really seem to have it all together. And then, you know, maybe when you have all these concepts together, you're going to need someone that says, okay, well, what do you do with it? What's the best fit? What if this is a scenario? What if this is another scenario? What if you have a kid who's this? What if you have a kid who's that? And a lot of it's very similar, but the little details, you know, I'm starting to get into a little bit more where I'd say 10 years ago, it's big picture and largely it still is, but then you're starting to see these little points where you can refine some things and, you know, you need a mentor like that. So it pushes you in that direction for sure. Yeah. And I, I look at it as, you know, and I've said this before, but if you're the smartest person in your room, get out of that room, get yourself in a room where you're being challenged, you're being exposed. That's one of the things that um, in a couple episodes in the past from this recording, I had Scott Christensen on and Scott Christensen said, I just wanted to be in the room with these people. I wanted to have enough respect to get in the room, but then by being in the room, there are responsibilities, which means you're going to challenge ideas you're going to be open. You're going to share. You're going to need to be, how can I say this, willing to be humbled, willing to accept the fact that you might feel a little bit like an imposter from time to time, but also be willing to defend your ideas, but also be accepting of, of some other people's ideas, at least to hear them and reflect on them. And I love what you just said there with, you need a different mentor at different times. I think that's absolutely true. And I think every career goes through seasons, not just like, hey, it's 2021 track and field season, but a season in life. It's like, well, now I'm a coach, but I also have children. Children, my own children are the most important thing in my life. How do I continue to maintain this level of intensity and success while at the same time not being absent in my children's life? You know, and if you don't get that right, you don't get other chances to get it right again. You know, like with a, as a high school coach, we kind of have every year we have a chance to get it right or to improve or whatever. And like you said, you know, big picture ideas are great, but also not only do we need to evolve because we're evolving as coaches, the social dynamic of young people and adolescents has changed quite a bit since you and I were in college or high school or whatever. And so there are things that are challenges that we never faced as young people growing up, social media being the biggest one, you know, kids having access to us at all times, you know, and that's like things that like, as a coach, I had to learn some hard lessons this year 
in terms of kids like sending me emails at like one o'clock in the morning and expecting like responses from me, you know, yep. and I'm like, that's, that's not going to happen. So yep. talk to us a little bit about, since you, you talked about Carl and Carl was kind of a curator of yep. talent for Simply Faster. He's moved on to, to different opportunities and things like that. You have contributed so much content to Simply Faster. Talk to us about how did that evolve? How did that come up? What are your hopes for what it's going to do for other coaches? And what are you looking forward to, to providing more value through Simply Faster in the near future? I had posted some videos on social media, Twitter, and Carl had actually sent me a message. And I, you know, this was a, quite a few years ago now. And when he first sent it to me, I was kind of like, wait, you, you want me to write? Like, <laughs> I, was, I was kind of blown away that someone would want to hear my experience out in Byfield, Massachusetts at a school of 600 kids and where there's not really a hotbed of talent in that general area. So, you know, he kind of assured me like, hey, I don't care how good your kids are. I think what you're doing is all right. My first few articles early on, I mean, you know, you're second guessing yourself. You're definitely like, is anyone going <laughs> to, is anyone wanting to read this at all? But it's been really fun watching the evolution of, of like articles because early on I'd pick kind of safe topics and then Kyle would push me to start writing like, hey, write an article about arm action, write an article about blending and bleeding drills. And these were things I probably had had like a tenuous grasp on. Like I knew it, I got it, but by writing about it, it allowed me to go deeper into that and why these things are so important. So without that push, and I would urge any coach to write, whether that be for a blog, their own blog, simply fast, or just getting things down. I mean, the way my mind works is like, it's, it's just a mess up here all the time. So to sit and write things down in an organized manner was like kind of like therapeutic in a sense, like, whoa, sort of almost shocked myself. Like, man, this, you know, once you're done and you look at your final product and it makes sense, you start to really believe in what you're doing and you build on that belief that you can bring into like your foundation and philosophy as a coach because it's written down and because you've written down you're sort of sort of almost holding yourself accountable to it that like i'm not just writing this to put it out there like i'm writing this because i do this every day well i do this every week every season rather than putting out some fairy tale perfection land thing that's never actually going to happen right. so when i write things i try to make it things that I'm going to be repeating things that I'm doing and being consistent about rather than, Hey, this is a good idea, but let's never talk about it again. In writing and coming up with topics, I try to hold myself consistent with like, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to experiment this within the future. Some things in the article that I'm not going to keep. The entire process of writing has just been so enlightening and helpful for my development. I think. I think that's really powerful in, and it's so true. And I, I, I'm so happy to hear you encourage others to write my experience with the courage to create content has been interesting because you know i've got learning disabilities i have a learning disability in writing that's why like if people who do pick up this printer's compendium you'll notice there are grammatical errors in there those are real and raw and if i ever will have time to sit down and clean it up that'll be the first thing i do for edition number two obviously will be to clean that up but as you write you get better at it just like yeah. anything else. And for me as a teacher, you know, and that was one of the things that I found really wonderful about this experience is like, oh, this is what my kids go through, my students go through. And I have to encourage them through this experience. Like now I have a real experience where I can say, hey, like you're never going to get better at this if you don't work at it. But also like when you're working in, you know, kids who journal or have a diary or whatever, like you start writing these things down there needs to be kind of a purpose to what you're doing. Are you, are you sharing gratitude? Is it event session? But for us as coaches, journaling helps us have yeah. somewhat of what I would say a ballast to keep us afloat. Like you can go back and look at the last year and go, Oh, okay. This is a problem that I have every year at this time. And because we have such busy brains and we have our students in our classroom, our athletes that we coach on the track or in the field, we our busy brains sometimes forget some of those things that were little issues that seem to show up all the time. And then, like you said, when you say tenuous at best, it is, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like I'm on the verge of an idea and a concept. And I'm starting like, you know, we talked about Carl connecting those dots, but not just 
walking us along like a dog, but instead being more of a guide saying, hey, in this woods over here, there is this really important thing you need to reach. And so then when we go out into this wilderness phase, we're at least not searching completely blind, but it is an organic experience where we're going to be doing it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's like, oh, now all these dots connect. I'm yep. starting to see the interwoven relationship between yep. these different ideals of training. And that's like for me, and we'll go into it, but you know, with Carl and then with Tony Holler, I started to go, oh, I've seen this in an athlete before. There is a cat in my program. I can apply this solution to this equation and fix this problem. And now I know where it's maybe like you said, it's not something that's going to just show up and then you don't do it. It's like, it's something that's actionable that you know the value of, you understand the context of where that person used it. And now in your context, you can apply that solution to that equation and figure that problem out. And yeah, you know, when I look back at my earlier articles, I can already see the growth and the change. Like I look back at my earlier articles, I'm like, oh man, I wrote that. Like, like I don't quite believe that right <laughs> now, but close that's one of the uncomfortable things about writing is you open yourself up to criticism and then sort of your future self is going to look back and go, oh man, like I've completely moved away from that idea. But at the time I either thought it was right or it fit in a situation I was in like during that season or at that school or in that event. But I think that's interesting. I think it's also not cringe inducing, but it makes you go, man, I, I feel like I have a more solid grasp on certain things now. For sure. And our, I think our path, and that's the whole important thing that I think the listeners need to understand is as coaches, evolution is important. You're going to get better. You're always going to feel like you're going to apologize for the content, the work, the coaching that you've done in the past. And it may be an apology to yourself, but I think our past selves also are valuable in order for us to become better. You cannot improve if you don't, if you're not a person who self-reflects, then you're not going to evolve. You're not going to improve because you think, ah, I, I know everything. And it's funny, Coach Eaton, because you mentioned, oh yeah, I thought I knew everything. Dude, I went through that same experience. I thought I knew everything. I didn't know anything. I was a moron, you know? And I thought I was so, so smart and so bright. And one of those things is, is like, I think that's the fun part of coaching though is facing these new challenges, these equations, providing solutions to these equations from what we have or our evolution and applying it. And it, it either works and it becomes something that's a permanent part of your training structure or your writing style or what's attractive writing or interesting writing. And you continue to keep getting better and better at your craft. So talk to us a little bit about some of the feedback that you've gotten on some of these articles what have you learned besides obviously you know the evolution of your writing and things what are some of these things that you've kind of come to that you now feel are pretty good pieces of knowledge or truth in training through this process of writing i think just the long-term athletic development of athletes being more patient with that and in the writing the things that I get the most feedback on would be like the drills, the blending and bleeding of different movements. And, you know, even though a track sprinter is a sprinter, they're a runner, they're athletes first. And athletes need to be athletic. They need to have a great base of movement skill. Prize that simple things like that were, were so well received, I guess, didn't really gain any criticism and kind of tick, I guess, you know, when I'm coaching track versus someone coaching football, it kind of opened my eyes to like, wait a minute, maybe a football team or football coach isn't going to have, he is going to have a harder time selling some of those things based on preconceived notions about other sports like skips and gallops and pr and prances that don't have the most masculine like type names to them and showing the value of them to those coaches and just seeing them be receptive and like open-minded to them saying, hey, I think there's value here but how do you create buy-in, which I think is important with these drills and these movements? How can I take sprinting and apply it 
you know, to my football players. Yeah, it was just awesome to see people being open-minded to like, hey, I think there's value with these drills and these concepts, but A, how do you create buy-in? How are you going to fit it in, you know, in your training week without robbing from the, you know, field sport work or the plays, diagramming of plays and all that, that you have to do. So all these drills and a lot of the writing that I do is about creating a better and a more intelligent athlete who's, who's ready to be on the same page as you with some of the cueing or some of the workouts, you're trying to create a uh, playing field in which you both feel comfortable sharing ideas and discussing and sort of communicating what the goal is of a workout or what the solution is to a specific task. So yeah, that's been you know probably the best thing knowing that maybe other sports have taken a little bit of what I've done as a track coach and say, Hey, we're going to work this in. Whereas, you know, that's not always the case. Sometimes people are very resistant to, like you said, things that might have kind of funky names or might not look exactly like football or basketball or volleyball or field hockey, you know, putting out content for not just track coaches, but for all coaches has been a game changer and something I can say I'm kind of proud of for sure. You hit that nail on the head with this idea, a more broad perspective of performance. So like track and field in many ways, in my opinion, is the root of almost all other sports, right? We want to throw faster, throw farther. We want to jump farther, jump higher. We want to sprint faster, run faster. We want to be very agile. Track and field is probably, in my opinion, the best sport to improve other sports. So that's why a lot of people come to track and field from another sport, right? It usually we are not the first choice. But what I think is valuable as experts in track and field, because we are the ones dealing with the most raw biomotor abilities, is figuring out a way to help and enhance other sports to genuinely display our real value. And it's interesting because basketball can improve from that. I, my roster that I had um, a couple of years ago, the girls basketball team took third in the entire state of Missouri and all five starters were track and field athletes as well. And we, you know, finished in the top four, I think twice or three times in the state when that group of girls was there, both sports fed each other. And so for those of us who are out there that are personal trainers are trying to provide content or grow a platform, the best way to do that is to not be so you got to be an expert in a niche somewhere, you know, you have this niche knowledge, but then you've got to be able to provide and show value to a lot of other sports. Cause the reality is, is that baseball, football, and basketball are the sports that pay the bills. They're the ones who rake in the most money in the United okay. States. And so what you've done, Graham, is provide a lot of value for all those sports and people are starting to see, oh man, yeah, those drills are really good. So instead of call it a prance, it could be a boom, boom drill. And that sounds more manly, right? And we brand these things. And, and you know, I know for the audience, understand that like we want to live in a world where some of these gender stereotypes don't exist but they do exist. And they, and so in sport, we've got to be able to understand, got to meet them where they're at to get them to come to our way to be comfortable. And one of the other things I think you've probably ran into Graham, and this is why your work's been so good is you've provided a lot of coaches options to do this stuff where they might not be experts. So with all the videos that you've shared and all the drills that you've shared, now coaches can get kind of like their associate's degree in coach Eaton philosophy and training, which allows them to then take it to their practice field and better teach it. And you and I both know, like if a kid feels uncomfortable, the first thing they're probably going to say about something they're doing when they're uncomfortable is this is dumb. Why are we doing this? And so it's important for coaches to know why, but then also provide a good means of bleeding the drills like you talked about into more challenging skill sets so that they're not overwhelmed and they give up, but they're stretched just enough and then kind of thirsty to improve on that. Is that kind of the way you look at the bleeding? Talk about your philosophy with bleeding these drills into one drill and then into the other. Sure. I, I mean, exactly what you just said, you, you have to push an athlete to the edge of their ability. If everything's always easy or, you know, they want challenges and, 
blending and bleeding drills uh, a way once you've established a decently solid foundation of just plain old drills, you can, you know, start combining or bleeding and blending these drills. And you're getting a smarter athlete as you're watching the actions change uh, within the rep. And, you know, when I was talking to Carl, he actually commissioned the article on blending and bleeding drills on what the distinction is between blending and what the distinction is between bleeding. And blending is more two separate drills. You're, you're alternating. But the important thing is to, the two drills have to link in some way. Something has to be similar about the two drills. The good thing is that most drills or movements have probably more in common than they do uh, sort of differences. I was actually Kyle calling me too. <laughs> I should have muted that. Most drills have more in common than there are differences. There's always a set of like non-negotiable things about a certain drill that has to be present. And then you're just asking the athlete to manipulate like a small change. And to me, that brings about a huge level of just body awareness. Like, how do I get from A to B seamlessly without any interruption or decrease in velocity? Not that you're moving super fast when you're doing these drills, right? You're not running 10 meters per second when you're doing drills. But something, for example, that I did today with the football team, and surprise, they had a hard time with it. <laughs> like, you know, skip into a gallop. Well, you know, you get the stacked posture and you got the arms contributing, and then you know, to change it to a gallop, you're just going to start rolling more heel toe. So, you know, all my videos I post, I have the sound off because I'm backing out heel toe, heel toe. Whereas, you know, on the skip, they're more bouncy and pushing to the foot when they bleed it into a gallop, you know, pelvic positioning is retained. Arm action is probably a little bit bigger on the gallop, but there's still arm action. There's still, still correct posture stacked uh, from head to foot, like what we're looking for. So that's the cool thing about blending drills and you can really, <laughs> there's no rules on that. You can blend any two drills together as long as it's a good fit and the athletes can do the two, two drills by their lonesome. Where bleeding is kind of like a singular movement. A bleed could be something like wickets into a fly where you're taking steps that you patent out for an athlete and you're asking them to take the same movement, same foot strike, same pelvic positioning out of the wicket into a fly. Or it could be something like a strike drill, which is a high knee run in place and, you know, hands on the hip, hands off the hip, out into a strike drill forward into a high knee run. So, you know, again, you're asking them to do these with a lot of intent. You're asking them to do it with some key things that you have already addressed with them through other prior drills. So, you know, I did a high knee run, high knee in place today into a high knee run into a sprint out. So we started with the hands on hip. We set our pelvic positioning, made sure we were stacked. Make sure you hammer the ground, feel the arches on your feet hammering off the ground, you know, the snap in your reflexes and your arch. Maintain that forward, add the arms in. And, you know, we're looking for them to bleed that with a small change. There has to be a rhythm in all of these things, which I think, you know, and I've written about this before. Rhythm is a really hard thing to quantify, but when you see it, you know what it looks like. And when there's a lot of athletes doing the drill, the athletes almost start to notice, hey, that kid looks dynamite at this drill. I'm not feeling that. What's, what's up? You know, you can, hey, are you feeling, are you seeing what he's doing? So there's a lot of opportunity there with just drilling because it's low stress. It's general prep. It builds durability. It builds motor skill awareness. You and the athletes can get on the same page with cueing and language which is really hard to do at 10 or 11 meters per second, but it's a lot easier to do it like two or three meters per second. So, you know, when they start to realize that a lot of the drills are kind of along the same lines, you're just asking them to manipulate a small change, like how a skip is different from a switch, how a gallop is different from a straight leg bound. But there's still a lot of things between the drills that are, are very, very similar. And you're trying to get your program to be receptive to cueing without painting them into a corner with no other solutions. That's kind of how I look at it.
That's great explanation. And if you were listening, you need to go back and rewind that and get your notebook out and start writing some of that stuff down because that was an excellent explanation on how you kind of put these things together, the difference between a blend and a bleed. So now to follow up on that a little bit, I'm going to ask some questions because I want to learn what's your process on what you're going to do and how you're going to put it together. Where do you place it in practice? How much time do you give it? And what is your strategy for rotation between days or evolution of the blend and bleed? Sure. So there's really two or three days per week that are very drill heavy. One is an acceleration day. On that day, you know, we're going to go more of a basic general A series, walk, march, skip, run. And, you know, then you can start bleeding an A march into an A skip into it. And they can sit there and they can feel, well, how does the march set me up effectively for the skip? How does the skip set me up effectively for the step over or the A switch? I mean, so if you think about it, you're just reducing the velocity of, of those drills, but you're still striking down from the top, loading your foot and your body into the ground like a spring. And then on the other drill heavy day is our maximum velocity day. There's a lot of drills we do that will be upright in nature and we'll ask them to bleed it out into a run, gallop into a run, an A switch into a high knee, into a run. And I, I have my big rocks that I use, A switches or boom, booms, boom, booms with taps between. It's all the same thing. It's just whatever I think is going to get the best result on that day. You know, that could be a single switch. That could be a three bucket hold with a Captain Morgan hop forward as long as they're staying stacked. I mean, it, there's no perfect way to progress this stuff, but it's, well, if you have a hundred kids, you know, I had 120 kids out in the field today. It's, it's you're going to have to select items you think most of them can do. And ultimately, if you choose something that's a little too difficult, to me, that doesn't bother me because that just gives me more information for the next setting on like, man, we really got to work some more remedial items. These more difficult items are just at an option right now. And then when I do things like prances, gallops, you know, other movements, I, I do a day before a tempo day that is kind of what Tony Haller describes as an X-factor day. However, I scale that way back to really general movements, skips, gallops, hops, learning to hinge, learning to squat, and just addressing movements on that third day. So I'm going to fill the bucket like, okay, if I'm teaching a hinge here, when I go to the weight room next week and I start teaching cleans, we've already had some prior exposure out on the turf. So I'm kind of almost trying to figure out what little mini lessons can I give on that third expat today that make my life easier for the following week. If I know, all right, you can introduce blocks next week and we haven't even done a three-point stop. Let's just do a three-point setup hold. We're doing isometric and a three-point hold. Like little things like that. And again, there's no right or wrong way to progress that. You got to think about your scope and sequence of a season and then plan drills and movements that are going to support you through that week. But those are my three drill-heavy days. The other three days really aren't drill-heavy at all. So get them loose, very general movements, skips, hops. Because when it comes to you know, things like tempo or intensive tempo or hills, there's a large amount of ground contacts in that workout. I don't need to sit there and do drills that light their CNS up for that because they're getting hundreds, possibly thousands of reps in that workout. The entire workout is a drill. Whereas acceleration, max velocity, and these X-factor movement days, those days are special for the overall development of the athlete. So I'm going to take a little bit more time in my warm-up in those days. And that could be 15 20 minutes uh, just on the sprint drill portion, not including the general movement and the dynamic flexibility uh, portion. So it comes down, you know, if I'm doing something like five times 200, like a thousand meters of quality ground contacts that, you know, that's the drill, that's the motor learning. Uh, so it's not every day. And I don't want, because if you're sitting there doing a switches on a tempo day, I think you're now robbing from your days that you want to have a high output when the workout itself is, is going to be enough for you to cue them and help them throughout. So, yeah. I love that. And I, I love the idea of being very judicious in the purpose of the context, right? So like in a day, you're going to go out and run 
acceleration runs to 30, 40 meters, or you're running 20, 10, 20, or 30 flies. It's like that foot contact on a 10, 20, or 30 fly is so important because of the minimal amount of stimulus. But it's in uh, the other part of the stimulus is the increased force output that you're getting, right? So it's this whole idea of, like you said, you've got these different purposes for these different days and you need to get your mindset in. What am I trying to accomplish this day? What am I trying to prime the athlete to do? And on this day, being very mindful, like even in cross country, like when we do like a long run, I don't spend a lot. And I'm the drill guy. I mean, I love, just like you, Graham, I love freaking drills. And so we'll have a pretty long warm up with a lot of drills and a lot of different actions and different drills on different days, yada, yada, yada. But when it comes to a long run day, as much as I want to do that stuff, I'm like, but we're already going to be out here for a really long time. These kids have a limited amount of neural battery that they've got for the day. So I can go do this and then they're going to be even more fatigued, which means then the long run is going to be not quality. So why would I do that? Or like, I don't need to cool. And then sometimes like I'll see distance people, they'll cool down after an aerobic runner. I'm like, why are you cooling down? Your pace never elicited a need for you to cool down. In fact, maybe the walk to the weight room would be the cool down for that day, you know, and then the weight room itself might serve as a cool down or regenerative activity because of the hormones, but also blood push. So what I love hearing from you is just how very thoughtful you're being in terms of what technical things you're doing on what days and why. And as the listeners who are getting an education from this, that's something you really need to think about because it's not about what you do. It's about how you do it and when you do it that matters the very most. Because let's be honest, Graham, everybody runs, everybody jumps, everybody probably sprints at some point in practice. But then it's like, well, if that's the case, then how are some people better than others? Even in situations where you talked about like, hey, you got 600 kids, you know, at the school total. I have twice as many as you. And then I compete against schools that are twice as many as me. So when you're thinking about how do you build these 300 Spartans and create this program where you can be deadly, you know, hostile, mobile, all this kind of stuff when it comes to time to competition, You've got to really dial that stuff in. All right. So moving a little bit down the line here, what are some of these things that you're doing now when you're thinking about the content that you're trying to create? What are some of the future things you're doing either through Simply Faster or coaches education through some other kind of online uh, classroom stuff? What are some of these things and what's the purpose behind what you're doing coming up? Yeah, uh, something I would love to create is some sort of drill resource, like how to execute each drill. I'm, I'm notoriously very picky when it comes to drills that I use and the cues that I'm giving to the athletes. And, you know, I do have them lock in. I'll make them redo drills if I feel like the effort was lackluster. I'll have them lock in. And I'm using that to teach. I'm using drills to teach. I'm not using it to warm them up. We'll have a set position for every drill for which you start from you can see them lock in you can tell right away which kids are dialed in ready for a good workout which kids are hungry wanting to learn and you know it's not always lockstep and drill sergeant but i think there has to be times when you're like hey this is a must have when you sprint so that they see we're not doing this for a circus act even like i see a kid do an ace skip there's a way i want that done and if they can't do it i'm asking well why not what's missing? What do we need to work on to get that? Is it, you know, the tilted at the pelvis or, or what? When I do certain drills, say there's like 10 big drills, something that, that I do, I would love to give coaches like do's and don'ts of each drill. Like here's how you set it up. Here's what you could do if a kid isn't getting it because I could have someone a skip well in 10 or 15 minutes, but it just depends on what they need to hear to get there. And you can see them trying to connect the dots sometimes so I think that's okay to have that bandwidth with your queuing when you're working with an athlete and, you know, giving coaches possible solutions to make these drills look crisp and clean. And I've always been honest. I don't think drills create these freaks of nature. I don't think drills necessarily create speed, but they create an athlete who's more aware, they're more intelligent. They can simply just 
move because these are motor skills and sprinting, as we know, it is just the highest of all motor skills out there. So if we can't do one, if we can't do something at two or three meters per second, I'm not sure how we can expect it to fall into place at nine, 10, 11 meters per second. It just doesn't seem like it's going to happen to me. When I inherit a kid who's like fairly fast, but can't move that well, that's like low hanging fruit to me to work on securing these postures, work on general coordination. So you know, providing a resource that like lays out like when you should use it, how you could progress it, how you could regress it. And there's no perfect answer to all those questions. Of course, a lot of the things that I've done with progressing and blending bleeding drills is trial and error. Sometimes I'll do something. I'm like, that was awful. I will never do that again. There's some things that I'm like, wow, that was extremely valuable to watch them take that from a low amplitude, a low velocity and speed that thing up. That to me is when you see the learning really, really happening, when you start to see commonalities amongst these drills. So a resource that was like highlighting some of these commonalities, how it builds, how a straight leg bound builds on an A skip, how an A skip can change into a A switch, how a strike drill can bleed into a wicket drill, into a run out, and just showing the options. Because I think as coaches, we're really only limited by our, our imaginations with some of these movements. And it's a fine line between doing stuff and doing stuff that you think has a purpose, but um, that's something I'm always trying to sort through. So I love to help coaches think about that critically and give them some cues and some key pointers for that. Love it. And I know that when that comes out, if that does, and I, I, I would push you to make that happen, you know, and, and just so to put it out there into the world that I think that there are a lot of coaches who would benefit from that, Graham. And I think that if you put that together, it would be game changing and, you know, rising tide raises all ships, you know, and I think it would really help out a lot of other coaches. So hopefully you start to go down the path of producing that content piece for everyone. Cause I think it would be very valuable. You've already obviously given a lot of value out there with all the two dozen plus articles you've written on simply faster and all the work you do. Now, with that being said though, a little bit of a preview, a little bit of a spicy morsel, you know, you get the first one for free, but the rest is going to cost you kind of thing. What are some no-nos that you see coaches do drills or cues that you think are counterproductive commonly in practice? What are some things you see that you're like, man, that doesn't work. That's silly or a progression that doesn't work or a placement that the, give me three things that you find that coaches maybe do and you've seen and you're like, man, if I had a chance to sit down with that coach and openly talk with them, I would really push them to maybe search for a different path. Sure. Uh, number one is not keeping it simple. I mean, if you don't have that, you know, day one and pretty much throughout the whole season, I'll use something called a loose skip, which is really a bouncy little push through the big toe joint, stack posture, arms contributing, like there's things to be gained by kind of perfecting and repeating that stuff. Drills, to me, it's not do it once, put it down, move away from it. Keep repeating it. Keep repeating it to the point that it's supporting the theme of the day that you have. That's what I always try to do. It's not just giving stuff. It's giving items that I think are going to make the main workout better without causing them to kind of, you know, overthink about what's to be done. Number two would probably be like not offering them solutions. Hey, go A skip. Hey, go prime to go do a straight leg bound. We're going to do some bounds today. Well, how does the foot change? What stays the same? Is there something different you have to do with the arms on this? Um, you know, are you telling them to pull, pull the toe up and not release the ankle too early? Are we, are we trying to hit in the middle of the foot? So just understanding what the movement requires and then giving the athlete that solution is to think about, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to like give a drill that I know slightly new is scaled up a little bit for something we previously sort of previously done. And once the athlete just frees up, they can't do it. Like their brain just like, is like, coach, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that upgrade yet. And then it's like downloading, downloading, downloading. And then all of a sudden click, they got it. I can't guarantee that that, makes your athlete faster right that second. That's not what this is about. This is long-term development. This is, this is about creating a smart athlete. Perhaps you can start moving away some of these more remedial drills with them because they simply don't need them other than just to get loose and get warmed up for the day. 
I would say the third thing is that like drills are just a warm up. I mean, it is a classroom. It is a chance for your athlete to rehearse, for you to check who looks tight, who looks ready. And I mean, early in the season, when you get them on the turf, the, those ground contacts on the turf, at least the durability. If you're drilling them early and often, you're creating durability later in the season. Like they, they have been exposed to tons of prep work out there on the turf. So you know, I'll communicate that with my athletes. Like, hey, we, yeah, we're learning to move. Yeah, we're warming up. There's only so much sprinting you can do. And there's only so much sprinting you can do day one, week one. So we got to fill the bucket with something else that prepares them for this. I always look at it this way. It's like even a power lifter has blocks of training where they're doing hypertrophy and they're just taking, you know, they're doing things that are easy on the joints and easy on the muscles. You can't be locked in 100% all the time. And that's something this season with, COVID and we had seven weeks this season and we had two meets a week. The powers that be decided that was a good idea. Not me. I didn't decide that, but my kids were much more beat up this season than they'd ever been. I think a lot of coaches can say that. And some of that was the pressure to get right to the specificity of like, you got to get in the blocks. You got to be wearing spikes. You go, Oh my God, you got a meet coming up in eight days. Jeez, you haven't even worn spikes yet. You haven't even stepped down in the block. And I kind of, in hindsight, wish I hadn't succumbed to some of that pressure. They're going to respond well to acceleration and ride that wave. Maybe we're out there on the turf. Maybe we're sprinkling in some spiked reps. So I think those reduced items not only create a better athlete, but they create a healthier athlete who's going to be around at the end of the season without these little aches and pains that pop up. Um, because that's half the battle as a high school coach in a 12 or 13 week season is just maintaining them. So I think there's tremendous value from a drill standpoint uh, from that as well. I love the idea of the beginning with these drills is it's a classroom. One of my big pet peeves is and I love my assistant coaches and I've talked and this is me saying this, they know I've already mentioned this that I want them there at the beginning of practice as soon as they can get there. And I want them to start coaching right away, which means as coaches, and, and this is obvious for the head coach, if you're the drill person, the warm-up person, which I would push every coach, if you can, to become, if you are the head coach, become that drill person, spend that time dealing with the technicalness, get there with the athletes, talk to them at the beginning of practice, let your assistants maybe set up some other things for practice at the beginning if that's what has to happen. But I want my assistant coaches around to be there teaching, learning, and watching my athletes as well. I don't want my coaches standing over and having a conversation away from me. That is a pet peeve of mine. It's something that we've gotten better at, but we're still working on as a staff because that's when you do the most coaching. That's where the athletes do the most learning. They're going to be the most neurologically fresh that they can be for that day, for that time period at the beginning of, of practice. I tell my athletes this too, all the time. I'm like, when can you run fast when you're fresh or when you're fatigued and every kid will go, well, when I'm fresh, I'm going to run faster. I go, uh, duh. So that's why we're doing all of these drills and, and activities at the beginning, not just they are good for warming up, but they're also good for dynamic stability, mobility, little articulations of strength and muscles that don't often get stimulated, right? And, you know, um, they're for teaching. And sometimes they're an overcue. Like you said, we're not going to make freaks from drills, but we could protect freaks from drills. We can help freaks move better through drills. And so we're going to optimize yep. the athlete, right? And that's where we want to start with that idea of education. And, and a side note, we were sore and injured more this year in my program as well. And I think that if anybody who's a listener and you're listening to this in 2021 or beyond you know, around COVID time, understand that like across the country, that was a problem due to lack of preparation, due to um, not having the ease and flexibility that you would normally do to accommodate bad weather, different weird experiences, you know, the spacing we had to keep, weight room, if you could get into the weight room, getting shut down for coronavirus, whether it was a quarantine or actually getting sick from it. There's so many challenges 
that made it really difficult. And in hindsight, just like you coach, there's definitely some things I've learned that I'll do differently. And the other thing, and I mean, you probably can speak on this here momentarily for sure, but there are probably some things that were reaffirming for you. You're like, oh, oh, that's why I do that. Because we were not really able to do this and it created these problems. So definitely that serves a purpose. I sacrifice that, but I actually need to highlight that in the future. Educate us a little bit on your thoughts about that a little bit more. Dive a little bit more deeply into that process you discovered this year. Sure. I mean, I think you touched upon it. The absence of the weight room and just, it, you know, I know we talk a lot of, you know, does, does speed make these athletes strong? It does it. I got to say it, it made them less durable not having the weight room. Okay. It made them a little less mobile being able to sit down into a deep front squat, not having those things there even though, you know, I wouldn't say we do that much lifting. Typically, we do a med ball or an Olympic touch-upon kind of exposure. And then a main lift, upper body, superset, and then a lower body accessory. I mean, it's really quite minimal, the lifting that we do. But I still noticed when you're having two meets per week for four or five weeks straight, Nowhere, certainly not in the professional world, are athletes being asked to do that. That's a ridiculous amount of strain on these bodies. And we tried, my, my jumps coach and I, we tried to move kids around. All right, you're going to do four by four, 400. All right, we're going to give you a break next week, 100, four by one. It, it still just wasn't enough without that general prep period. I mean, fancy doing a lot of 10, 20, 30 meters, two point, three point, various position stats on the turf. But man, it's something that builds tissue tolerance to racing. You know, I hate to be a negative Nelly. I'm very happy we had a track season, but I'm a perfectionist. I obsess over this. It felt largely unfulfilling for me as a coach. Hey, I, you know, I was happy the kids were back. I, so some part of me that's being a human can sympathize with, hey, track is back and it was wonderful but it also left me really hungry to get back to basics and stuff that I actually believe in for next season. Because I mean, when you have a meet Wednesday and you have a meet Saturday, well, when you come back Monday, your speed work's not going to be anything (laughs) too dense. It's going to be race prep stuff, stops on a curve. It's going to be handoffs. It's, it's, but you just maintain, I felt like I was just maintaining. I was just getting ready for the next meet. It wasn't like developing them, trying to develop hurdles in a six week season. It was like, Hey, we're going to gallop a lot. We're going to do some short approach. Just realize how important six weeks make in a high school athlete's development, having six or seven weeks just truncated. You don't think it would make that much of a difference. Man, it does when you're 15 to 18 years old. And, but the power of the drills, the weightlifting, these supports to sprinting, they're more important than people think when you're trying to create and develop smart and healthy athletes, I would say for sure. And having that missing was just, again, I'm happy track was back, but it was also very unfulfilling for me as a coach. Well, and it's very reaffirming to hear you say that because I mean, yeah, we weren't able to lift if it rained or snowed or whatever, we were not allowed to go inside and do any kind of acceleration hallway work or anything like that, which takes a huge thing out of my repertoire. We weren't allowed to do any kind of like, if we're going to do a tempo circuit inside, get them off their feet, couldn't do any of that. So, you know, a weight room without walls is something that we definitely did this year, but we could do better. The fact that we were probably, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 athletes short of what we normally are. And I agree, man. I felt like I was this year in this, in this season, I was like the most in of not a terrible coach by any means. We had a great year, and a, but I felt like I wasn't as much of a factor as I normally am because they took so many items off the menu. Yeah. It's like, I, I open up my menu. What am I going to do today? Well, I'd like to have fish. 
Well, the fish didn't get caught in the ocean today. Well, I'd like to have chicken. Well, oh, the chicken left the chicken coop and they flew away. I don't have them. Well, what do we got? Well, we've got lamb. Well, I had lamb yesterday. Well, but you know, lamb is good. You know, it tastes, it's delicious. Okay. Well, what about uh, having a salad with that? Well, sorry, you're not allowed to have salad because it's not in season. And it's like, oh my God. And yeah. that's how I felt like as a coach, right? Couldn't do a lot of my bread and butter, which is, you know, sliding the tempo in with the KPI workouts and things like that. Couldn't weightlift. And I'm telling you, weightlifting freaking matters. For me, we couldn't really have the athletes touch each other because our partner stretching starts to slip into that 15 minute win. It's not 15 minutes, but it gets close to that. And having those athletes close. So we didn't do a lot of that. Well, guess what? I had more hamstring pulls in one year than I had over 12 years this year. And it's like, well, what's going on? Well, all these things, no partner stretching, flexibility, suppleness training, no tempo work, hardly at all. Because if I'm going to practice, it's like, well, I could have done tempo, but we had the day off yesterday. So I'm just going to go ahead and get after it again. Well, hindsight, that's not a good choice. I need to go back to some of my basics, like you talked about and getting some of those things done. And, And I felt like you did, we won a conference title and it was weird because it felt pretty unfulfilling. You know, I was like, I'm glad we won, but you know, there's some things we've left on the table. And then the next week with districts, as I was working to get some of my athletes back that had those injuries and we got two of the three of them back. Then I felt like, Oh wow. Okay. All of this work we did do and managing these things it worked out. So congratulations for getting these athletes through a season with an injury, but at the, but so that's new, you know, and not that I haven't gotten athletes through it, but it was high end athletes who are sprinters who are expected to do a crazy amount of events through district sectionals and state for us to have a shot at the state title and all of these kind of things. And so there's victories in that, but just like you, I was happy track was back for sure. We did well, but I'm hungry like you are for normalcy. I want to get back to being able to dial in all of these things that I feel like separate me from other programs because we're doing those things. So to finish up, I've got two more questions for you. One about training and then one's a deep thought one in the time that you've developed in this, you know, over a decade of coaching and all this kind of stuff, what are some things that you feel like are uniquely yours when you cross-reference it with things like feed the cats or the long to short model or critical mass or whatever other branding ideas that coaches have out there what what has made your program uniquely yours and how have you tried to pull all these things together to create your own Graham Eaton sprinting track and field program yeah I mean I, I think it comes back to the the long-term athletic development, I, I think it's, it's something that's really important because it's, it's tough to teach a block start or like a relay pass to someone that just doesn't know how to move their body. So, you know, what I do for the running workouts is nothing special. Like it's the same old typical stuff, but what I try to do is my own would be putting movements I think that are going to support the daily theme for the workout and then constantly using those as reference points. And this time we're just standing against the fence, like for example, holding a fence, doing like a wall cycle and then showing them, how, all right, dump your pelvis forward. What happens to that range of motion? Oh, it's in the backside of your body now. All right, can you restore that? Like just like little mini lessons, all right, we're going to do a drop and pop plyo. Um, once you think about landing in the middle of your spike plate, even though they don't have spikes on, they have sneakers on, can you guys feel the elastic energy that's stored in your arches and how having flat tires would be like the worst thing possible for you? You know, I'll have them pretend the bug is on the ground. Go step on the bug. Step on it with your toe pointed down. Step on it by keeping your ankle dipping down too early and they can feel the pop. So doing things like that, like just bringing it, you know, I'll have them stand in place, move your arms upward. And then, you know, you have no core control, no stretch reflex in the front of the delt, stand up, swing your arms down. All of a sudden it's slinging forward. just like they're at the doctor's office getting tapped by that 
the triangle thing on the knee it's kicking out so there's all these reflexes you know in the body i want the kids to be aware of and i think just making time for that in my week has paid huge dividends because they're starting to realize like okay that's why i'm doing this that's why you know if i'm having a kid do like a block stat and they're like just being lazy with their ankle and stepping out from the body get down in a mountain climber position you see how your toes are pulled up and you have more stability where are you pushing from there's all these other other just weird strange little general movements you can pull from to make them have an aha moment and that's kind of what i live for is for the kid to go aha like he's not saying this he's not telling me to to uh stop spilling my pelvis forward out to the front too much he's saying it because i physically can't have a good ground contact or the range of motion where i want it if i'm not doing this correctly so i, I mean the workouts the med ball throws the plyos spending time teaching that from the ground up is something i kind of take pride on and i think maybe i slow that down a little more than most Awesome. And I, I think that's exciting. And it's, it's an avenue that I think all of us coaches can take your lead on and try to get better at, because if we're not teaching, what are we really doing? You know, are we just laying out a workout? Well, like if we're just laying out a workout, anybody could hire any personal trainer and do some online, you know, program and send somebody some money for some worksheets, you know, but the reality is, is that as educators, coaches are educators, teachers are coaches, like we have value. And I mean, let's be honest, like, if there's anything that we've been taught during coronavirus is that this online learning, yep. you know, is not anywhere near as effective as in-person education. And that goes for coaching as well. No offense to people that have those type of businesses or consult. We all have probably, you know, would love to be that source of knowledge for people around yep. the world, but someone's got to do the education for those people and the best way is to press the flesh to be in the person to to watch with the critical eye to have that relationship to pick up on those cues live as they are happening so my last question for you is coach i'm going to do this a little reverse than what i normally do what do you think your future self is going to tell you that you learned from your coaching in your first 12 years that will still hold true in the future? What will your future self tell you that you've learned from your coaching that will still hold true in the future? I think keeping it simple uh, and staying true to what I believe to be true about movement and sprinting. I think prioritizing rhythm and I think looking good in some of these workouts is kind of the precursor to being, being, fast to me if i have a fresh is the precursor to being fast later so to me if i have a kid who's a freshman that's hitting these positions but lacks the strength and just the general output um i always think prioritizing that athletic development is going to get you the result uh, that you want down the road i mean we'll have kids that come back after summer and fall they come into winter and i'm like how the heck are they running this fast? But it's because we didn't overextend them. You know, we didn't sort of tried to make the workouts like they're not about me. I have no ego when I coach. The, the, the thing that I want to do is give the movements, give the workouts that I think are going to get the best result with those kids in front of me. And, you know, you can't always do it perfectly. If you got 100 kids, you, you know, someone's slipping through the cracks a little bit, but you know, the, there's a certain way I like to train. I love ends to middle for the 400 for long sprints. I think that's, you know, but there's times where I've used workouts that you have done with certain advanced athletes and has absolutely bumped them forward. Working with a football team who actually lifts before they sprint right now is out of my hands. So I'm 100% falling Tony's model of feed the cats. We're doing two or three sprints. We might just do some buildups and then do some short accelerations uh, because, you know, they're coming in with some fatigue, at least they're doing it, right? But not just going, hey, this is what I'm doing today and I don't care what happened before or after this. Like, you have to adjust, like, hey, this is what you're getting. But I think if you prioritize their development, their movement quality, the general strength, I mean, down the road, the output's going to be there if, if you're holding them accountable for 
um, all of those things for sure. Well, Coach Eaton, I appreciate you being on today. You've given us a lot of value, a lot of opportunities for coaches to get better. Share with us where a coach who really wants to level up his game when it comes to drills and movement and rhythm, where can they find you and your resources and things that uh, you've got going on on social media? Sure. Probably my uh, two biggest platforms are Twitter. If you can find me at uh, Triton Sprints on Twitter. I, th- I think I'm Triton Sprints on Instagram as well, but I have a much smaller base on Instagram for some reason. And if you click the link in my bio, you can be brought to all of my articles and blogs that I have written. Um, have a few more in the works for sure. And, you know, I'm hoping to keep putting out some good content and things that get me excited about coaching. Um, so yeah, you can look for those there. Awesome coach. Well, thank you so much. And to the listeners, make sure you share this out. There was a lot of opportunities to learn today about a lot of different subjects from a technical aspect, from a philosophical aspect, from a kind of reaffirming aspect of maybe some of the things that you're doing. And remember, if you're the only person that hears this, you're getting better and you might think you're keeping a competitive edge, but that is a scarcity mindset. And the Companions of the Compendium podcast is believing in a growth mindset and in a mindset that is of abundance. So sharing this out, make sure this gets to the people that it needs to get to so that we can have a bigger audience and we can get this message out. Because at the end of the day, we're helping young people become better athletes, often through better coaching. And if you're a human, You want humans to have a better experience. You want them to have less injuries. So it's so important to share this out, subscribe, send this to your friends. And remember, be safe, be smart, make good decisions. We love you. Peace out.